Heavenly Father, new years are new beginnings, and we are thankful for it this year, Father. And it's only appropriate, Father, that that new year would bring a new opportunity to study and a new book to come in the weeks that follow today. But first things first, Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us individually and to our church over the last three years that we could end what we began in this study and that we could see it through. We started this body, Father, under the leading of your spirit and the confidence that you wanted us to form and you wanted us to move forward and that you had a purpose in it. And we took that step of faith, Father, not knowing for sure how it would turn out. And Father, the days that we faced in the last year only added more doubt, but in hindsight, Father, there was never any reason to worry because this is your church. You build it as you see fit and you are working, Father, in ways we can't even see. And we thank you, Lord, that you've included us in that work. We thank you that you've been faithful to us in finance. You've been faithful to us in workers. You've been faithful to us in the provision of a place to meet and and in so many other ways. But most of all, and most importantly, your word has never varied, never been shaken, never departed from us, never been found false, that your word, Father, has brought us through difficult seasons, has taught us important things, shaped our lives, directed our hearts in new and better ways. Father, your word is a constant in our life and working in every area, and we are so thankful, Father, for it and for what we've learned in the last three years through it. Don't let it end here, Father. As we finish one and we begin another, we thank you, Father, for where you'll lead us in that as well. Help us understand the last of it as you did the first of it, Father, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who are counting, it was January 25th, 2018, when we started the Gospel of Matthew, and over 129 lessons taught over 153 weeks And that totals 11,827 minutes. I listed those statistics not out of pride or ego, but for one reason only. I want to remind you that there is no limit to how much you can learn from the study of Scripture. John tells us at the end of his gospel that the world is not large enough to contain all the books that would have to be written to record everything Jesus said and did in his three years on earth. And that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but maybe not. You know, it took us a little while to finish this study, but even still, I don't think we scratched the surface of it. I could do the whole thing again right now and there'd be a whole bunch of new things that would come out of it. That's how the work of studying the gospel or studying any Bible book goes. And here's the most important part of it. If you've spent any time together with me over this journey, then you have changed. You have changed. Each of us changes in some way through the study of what we find in God's word. That is why we do it. That's the power of it. That's the purpose of it. It transforms us. Paul says it renews us. And let me be clear about what I'm saying. I am not saying that what it says gets into our head and we think about it and we learn something like we learn math or history and that in and of itself is the change. No, that's not it. That's the least of it. I'm saying that the word of God has a power associated with it independent of what the words are saying which can renew us spiritually, mature us, raise us up into the likeness of Christ, and that in time that will reflect in our behaviors and in our words and in our thoughts. But those are independent things. You know, when I was sitting in a church years and years ago and I had a pastor in a church like this teaching from the uh, book of Genesis, and I was not a believer, and I heard him teaching the story of Noah, the flood story of Genesis 6, and out of that teaching I came to faith 
Now, there was no point in that teaching when that pastor stopped in the middle of the teaching, looked straight at me in the room and said, by the way, Steve, I gotta tell you something. Jesus is Lord, you need to believe in him for your salvation. He just went through the book of Genesis, um, yeah, the book of Genesis and the story of the flood, but in the course of those words being taught, the power of them impressed on my heart the truth of the gospel. Can I explain how one led to the next? No, nor would I need to, because the point is, it has a power independent of the message. The message isn't meaningless, but it has a power independent of the message. And when we take time to study the Bible the way we just did through the Gospel of Matthew, it's not because we don't have anything better to do, it's not because we just wanna stretch things out to cover time, it's because we trust that if we devote ourselves to it in an honest and detailed way, it will change us. And it won't necessarily be because of what I learned on one day or the next day, it's not because of an accumulation of knowledge, it's because I sat at Christ's feet and that relationship was established and built, and it changed me. If you've never experienced that, or if what I'm saying doesn't make sense to you, stick around. And I bet a lot of us have changed in ways we don't even recognize, because sometimes the change is inside us, and we won't let it out. You know, you feel differently about things, you think differently about things, but it takes a while sometimes to want to actually do what you learned you should do, or to change what you know you should have changed. There are aspects to that growth that take a while sometimes to work out, but they're there. So if you're into New Year's resolutions, let me suggest one for you. Maybe a good one is just more time, not less, in the Word of God. Because that is the way that will every, change everything else in your life over time. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, 25. But the Word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the Word which was preached to you. And therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, Long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. That is why we do this. That's why we started this church. That's why we keep doing this every week. I like to tell people all the time, it's not like San Antonio needed another church. There are a ton of churches in San Antonio. Many of them are quite fine. We started this because we didn't see a church doing this, in this way, exactly this way. And we felt like that was something the church could use. And so we're providing it to you for that reason. That's what we're here for. If you study scripture long enough, you will eventually become unrecognizable to the family and friends who knew you before. You will be a different person. That's a better way to change than other ways. There was a lady, who, a middle-aged lady one time who had a heart attack and was taken to the hospital. And while she was on the operating table she had a a near-death experience she dies for a a brief period of time and when she went onward in her spirit she shows up in a place and she perceives God and she asks is my time up am I here now this is this is now me but the voice she heard said no actually you have 43 years nine months and 10 days remaining in your life and almost instantly she's awake again on the hospital bed back in her body, and she decides in that moment that if she's going to live that much longer, well, she's going to make the most of her life. So before she's uh, released from the hospital, she schedules some elective surgery. She has a facelift and um, lip implants, tummy tuck, liposuction, changes her hair color, just the whole nine yards. And after she's recovered from all of that, it's time to leave the hospital. She walks out the front door, a new woman, totally changed, crosses the street, bam, gets hit by a bus and dies. Now she's in God's presence a second time, only now she's upset. She looks at God and she says, what happened? You told me I had 43 more years. Why didn't you pull me out of the way of that bus? 
And God said, I didn't recognize you. <laughs> Not the right way to change. Better way to change would be study. So let's finish Matthew, speaking of study. Let's go back into chapter 28. We left off at verse nine. So let's look now at the post-resurrection appearances that Jesus makes that Matthew records. We started a little of that last time. We'll finish it today. Verse nine. Behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go, take my word to my brethren to leave for Galilee where they will see me. All right, let's get back into the story from where we've been. You remember I told you that Matthew is abbreviating a lot of the post-resurrection appearances. In fact, Matthew's gospel abbreviates the, the whole death, burial, resurrection part of the gospel compared to the others. So we look at the other four, or the other three rather, and we get a better sense of what was going on. I'll summarize it for you. We know already that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene first, after he resurrected, in the garden. She sees him, she runs back into the city to tell the 11 men who are huddled there, waiting in fear, and he says, I saw Jesus, she says, I saw Jesus, and she says, Jesus told me to tell you you're to go to Galilee, because he'll meet you there. If you want to see him, go there. <laughs> but they're looking at her like a hysterical woman, and they don't believe a thing she says, and so they don't go anywhere. They don't go to, to Galilee, they stay in the room. Then later, that's on Sunday, we're on the day that Jesus rose, Sunday. Later that afternoon, Jesus appears, Luke tells us, to two male disciples who are on the road from Jerusalem to a little town outside of Jerusalem called Emmaus. He walks with these guys for a distance, but by the Spirit, they're prevented to know it's Jesus. They don't recognize him. And then later in that afternoon, they stop somewhere for a, for a meal, and Jesus breaks bread with them, and something about the breaking of the bread moment, almost like communion being repeated, it snaps into their mind, this is Jesus. God allows them to see him. And they recognize him. And then he almost quickly thereafter is gone. Jesus leaves. So then the men run back up that road to Jerusalem to find the disciples that are hiding there to report to the apostles, we saw Jesus alive. All right, this is all still Sunday. And then by the time you get to verse 11 now in Matthew 28, in verse 11 you have the 11 men in that upper room at the end of that day having received multiple testimonies that Jesus is alive, both from women and from men. You had Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome who saw him and saw the angel and told them about the angel in the empty tomb. You have Mary Magdalene who said, I saw him. You have the two men on the road to Emmaus saying, we saw him. You have Peter and John running back to the tomb and seeing it empty. They saw there's no body there. All the mounting evidence says he's alive and they refuse to believe it. They're still fearful, they're hiding. And because of that, they won't go to Galilee, which if they had gone to Galilee, they would have seen him. And then their doubts would have been put aside. So because they won't go to Galilee and find Jesus there, Jesus comes to them and finds them in their hiding place that night, Sunday night. And that's verse nine. That's what Matthew is saying in verse nine. That's the moment he's describing. Jesus comes before those 11 men. Now John's gospel gives us the moment in detail. I'll just read you a passage from John chapter 20 so you can see what actually happened. In verse 19 of that chapter he says, when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, that is the day Jesus resurrected, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you, when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you, which is to say, to Galilee. 
As he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So it's this tender moment, Jesus finally appearing to these men, showing them that he is alive, and you know they finally get it. I mean, it's no surprise now, they can see him, but he had to do that because they wouldn't accept the testimony of all the earlier witnesses. And then he tells them, you're gonna be my ambassador. By the, by the Spirit's power, he's coming soon. That breathed moment there, that's not the moment they got the Holy Spirit, that is a, a premonition of it, if you will, a foreshadowing of it, Jesus simply indicating it's going to happen, and then at Pentecost it does, and that they're gonna go out. Now, Here's the point, and this is why I mentioned this passage. The mystery and the power of Christ's resurrection was not for its own sake. It wasn't merely a show, a, a proof, um, you know, hey, get, look at what I can do, guys. It wasn't just for that purpose. Its entire reason, really, its, its key purpose is that the gospel message itself would have power. That in other words, These men are being told to go so they can begin kingdom work because now that Jesus has risen from the dead, the kingdom work can begin. The the message that says Jesus is Lord is true, but when I can add to that, and he rose from the dead, now it has power. That is to say, now it is self-evidently true. It demonstrates its truth in the reality of what Christ did. If you take the resurrection away, there's no message. There's no power. There's no gospel. There's no kingdom work. But with the resurrection, it's now all possible. So because the resurrection has happened, these men have a job to do. The point is, you've got the message now. You've got the power now. Get moving. Go to Galilee. We've got work to do. And instead of moving forward in the mission, what are they doing? They're still struggling to believe the resurrection. They're still struggling to accept that he is alive. The mission, if you think of it this way, the mission of the church is on hold while 11 guys struggle with the meaning of Jesus' death and the testimony that he's alive. They are facing unique circumstances, yes, but they are acting according to a pattern that can afflict all of us. In fact, many Christians, I find, especially early in their walk with Christ, will get paralyzed or stuck on what I call step one, that is, trusting in the resurrection, trusting in the message of it, trusting in the power of it. And what I've seen specifically is people who will not move beyond the step of believing in Jesus or sort of marinating in that concern of believing and what is saving faith and did I get saved and how did I get saved and how are we saving others and what is this whole salvation? They've stuck there for a while And because they're stuck on that step, they never move out in any other form of mission work, any other form of kingdom work. It is impossible for you to tell someone else about the power of of the saving message of the gospel if you're still debating it yourself. It's impossible to go out converting people to the truth of the gospel if you're not sure you're converted yet, or you're worried you're going to lose it, or you're worried you can sin your way out of it. Or you're worried that it's possible that one day you believe and one day you don't. And I don't know if I'm safe today. And I don't know whether I'll be safe tomorrow. And I don't know how this works. And then you're worried. You're just stuck worrying about things you don't need to worry about. That the Bible has settled. That the testimony of Scripture says it ain't a thing. It isn't a worry. So, and I've seen this so many times. It's it's a bit of a frustration because I feel so sorry for people who sit in this place not only from, say, personal experience in a church, but more often from the ministry where we have people outside the church, outside the city, worldwide, who send us emails, send us letters of concern about this issue. I don't know if I'm saved. I've been baptized four times. I've said this, the confession 12 times. I keep going. I'm just, I'm not sure yet. 
I'm not mocking it, I'm saying you hear that and you're like, oh my goodness. <laughs> this is someone equivalent to the 11 men sitting in the upper room saying, I know they say he's risen, but I don't know. It's hard to mature as a Christian or to serve other Christians, much less to be an ambassador of Jesus, if you're still trying to debate whether you're a Christian. Some Christians, and the worries are usually, you know, can you lose your salvation? How do I know I'm truly saved? How do I know that if I sin so much, God won't you know, reject me in the end? Things that are settled in Scripture. That we need to settle. All the evidence of Scripture testifies to us that we have what Christ said we have by our faith alone. All the evidence testified to those guys Jesus was alive. They just couldn't get it until they could get it. They couldn't move forward. Until they could move forward, kingdom work was on pause. And on an individual level, that happens too. Is that you this morning? I would be surprised in a room this size there isn't somebody who walked in here today with these thoughts sort of circulating in their mind. Maybe they're not every day, but that worry, that fear, it just keeps coming back. And I'll tell you right now, if that is you, I assure you that you are not doing as much kingdom work as you should or could. It's inevitable. You're gonna be like one of those 11 men. You've heard the proofs, you've heard the scriptures, you've heard the preaching, but yeah, I don't know. Look, let me just settle this for you if I can. I don't know if I can, but I hope I can. The testimony of scripture is this. If you believe that Jesus is Lord and that he died for your sins, you are saved by that faith, full stop. To believe that message, the Bible says, once, just at the beginning, not continuously, it's not about how often you believe it, it's not how strongly you believe it. Do you believe it's true, yes or no? Yes, then you are born again. To be born again is to become a child of God, adopted into the family of God. To be adopted into the family of God means you become a fellow heir with Christ and of good things to come that are reserved for you by the power of God, Scripture says. The Bible says these things are true for those who have that faith, it is unchanging and it is eternal. Nothing and no one can reverse the born again spiritual change that comes when you believe. No more can you be unborn spiritually than you can be unborn physically. No more can you sin your way out of the family of God than you can sin your way out of your earthly family. You can do a lot of bad things. It will not make you one less a child of the parents that you have. And you can do a lot of bad things. It will not make you one less an adopted member of God's family. And your eternal inheritance is reserved for you in heaven, the Bible says, by the power of God and nothing can take it away. You can put things in storage here and moth and rust will destroy it, but the heavenly treasure you earned is outside the, the damage of anything or anyone. No one can take you out of the hand of God. Paul says this in 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, listen to this, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. He caused it to happen. He says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the later time. That is an unbroken chain of events. All those who are born again have a living hope. All those who have a living hope will obtain an inheritance. All those who have that inheritance will be protected by the power of God to receive it in a day to come. There is no ifs in there. There's no conditions in there. It's an unbreakable chain from front to back. You believe the message? Then you're saved, and may I say, get over it. Move on.
Let's get to work. In the words of Matthew 28, go to Galilee. Jesus will meet you there, and your kingdom work will begin. And effective service in any capacity requires that you set aside those doubts about your own salvation or about the resurrection. And may I add, it also means setting aside the fear of what will happen if you go. You know, Jesus did not save us so we can hide in our homes from the scary world out there and just count down the days until we die. And nor did he call us to come into a building like this and collect amongst ourselves and form a community which has no purpose. Right? Everything we do is supposed to be directed toward the end that we are to go to kingdom work. He saved us to represent him to a world out there. We're to go out there as his ambassadors and we go out no matter what may happen to us when we go. I mean, that's the attitude we should have. We are to be light into darkness. We're to bring good news. And if you're gonna do that, you have to operate with a trust that says, Jesus said he went ahead of us. He's in the Galilee there, so to speak, waiting for us. He's working in the ground. He's preparing hearts. He's making a way. You just gotta show up. You just gotta show up. Whatever happens, whatever comes of it, it's in God's purpose. We can trust that. And I would argue it's better to reach the end of our life by going than to end our life by waiting. All right, Matthew 28, 11. Now we come to the topic of going in a minute, but before we go back to this topic of going, as the, as, you know, the, the gospel ends with it, there's this little interlude in verses 11 through 15. This interlude actually deals with the issue from a different angle. We'll see it in a minute. Let's just read what Matthew gives us here. This is Jesus' enemies continuing to oppose him even in death. Verse 11. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed, and this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Now, as you look at verse 11, he says, now while they were on their way, the they would refer back to the disciples. And so the impression you get here is that the disciples immediately jumped up out of that upper room as Jesus appeared and said, oh, let's go to Galilee. Nope, that's not exactly what happened. John tells us that in that initial meeting, one of the 11 was missing, Thomas. And he'd been out of the room when Jesus appeared to the, the other men. And so when he comes back, Jesus is left. And they're excited to tell him, guess who was here while you were gone? He thinks they're putting one over on him. He's convinced that his buddies have all conspired while he's been gone to make him look like a fool. So he refuses to believe that Jesus had actually, he says, you know what, I'm not even going to believe until I can put my hand into the holes in his body. I think he meant that somewhat facetiously. I don't think he expected to ever do it. Meanwhile, because Thomas doesn't believe, he won't go to Galilee. Because Thomas won't go to Galilee, the other ten men don't go without him. So Thomas's unbelief holds them from going to the kingdom work as intended for another eight days. And for eight days, they're sitting still. So Jesus has no choice, I would guess, than to appear to all of them again to finally get Thomas over the hump and get him on the way. So eight days later, he appears again in the upper room to now all 11 men, Thomas now being there. And as you know the story, Thomas sees Jesus, believes, and so on. And they finally, at that point, leave. Now, while all of that's going on, Matthew tells us that the Roman guards who were there at the tomb guarding 
have recovered from their paralysis at the time and they have begun to talk. And apparently they saw everything even though they were paralyzed in fear. Even though God kind of laid them down and got them out of the way for a while, they weren't unconscious because they saw the earthquake, they saw the angel roll the tomb open, they saw presumably Jesus leaving because it says they went to report all the things that happened. You notice that? All the things that happened. So they saw it all. And as they start to talk about this, you know, the news starts to, to spread and eventually they reach the chief priest. Now, Romans don't work for the Jews, so they're going there probably because they either have this general question in their own mind about what does all this mean? Can you help us? Or maybe they see an opportunity because they know that the Jewish leaders are not gonna want this story to be the story that's circulated. So in this conversation with the elders and the chief priests, they're told, uh, we don't believe your story, and for that matter, we don't want anyone else to either. You know what the chief priest should have done? when someone gives a credible report of resurrection is they should have investigated that and if it were true, they should have supported it and made the obvious conclusions from it. But that was not their interest. So they seek through conspiracy and bribery to change it. They tell the Roman guards, you're not gonna say anything about what you saw, you're gonna say that the disciples stole the body, that's why he isn't in the tomb. And they had to pay a lot of money to get the Roman guards to say this because it did not reflect well on them. Remember, their whole job was to not let that happen. So when they start walking around saying, yeah, we let a bunch of disciples steal the body, they don't look very good. In fact, you notice the, the religious leaders say, when your boss hears about this and gets upset, we'll take care of that for you, because they knew that was an issue. But with the money, with the promise of safety, the men take the story and they circulate it widely, we're told. It was fake news, but it, hey, you know, gotta be with the times here. But, but here's the thing, you know, a story like theirs explains why the tomb was empty, but it does not address the heart of the issue, right? It does not explain how people are seeing Jesus alive again. You can't explain that, because everyone knows he died. And yet now there's these reports. In fact, there are a lot of people talking about Jesus being alive, not just the handful that we've seen so far, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that there were a ton of witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, we hear this. He says... I delivered you that of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then listen to the list of witnesses. He says, and Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. I mean, that's 500 plus people he's talking about. One single incident in which all 500 were in the same place at the same time. And Paul says, when he wrote this some 25 years after Jesus' death, he says, many of these 500 are still alive now. So in Paul's day, you still had numbers of people who could say from firsthand eyewitness testimony, I saw him alive. All right, that's the overwhelming evidence that led the gospel to be accepted as true and allowed it to move forward in God's power. And that's how the gospel works in general, all the time. God's truth, this testimony, triumphs over the enemy's lies because this has power and the lies don't. The lies are just words, people believe them, yes, but they have no power other than that. This has real power, the word of God has power. The message you have as you go out is a message of what Jesus did. It's not a message of what you do, it's not a message of what they can do, it's a message about what Jesus did. That has power. 
Wherever you go with that message, Jesus has gone ahead of you. You can know that he's preparing a heart to hear it, that they're gonna receive it because of what he's done to bring that about. When you share that truth, the enemy will oppose it, just like you see happening here with Jesus' disciples, yes, but that opposition stands no chance in the face of God's power for where and when God wants it to have that power as he designs it, right? So let me ask you this. If the message is not yours, the power is not yours, and it's been given to us because God intends to do something through it, why are we not going out with it? Why would we not share it? That is the message of Jesus and the gospel. What stops us at that point? It has to be things like fear, doubt, laziness, apathy. I mean, those are the only explanations. Embarrassment, pick one. But it can't be because you have any reason to think it's not gonna work or that it shouldn't be done, right? So as, you, as we end Matthew's gospel, that's the issue in view now. He's laid out the, the, the difficulty that the apostles had in accepting the truth. And he's laid out the level of opposition that the church was facing even in Jesus' death. And if you just step back for a moment, you think, man, the deck is stacked against the gospel right now. I mean, you got religious leaders of great power conspiring in this powerful lie that spread widely to say Jesus isn't who he said he is. And what do you have on the other side? A bunch of lily-livered 11 men sitting in a room too scared to go outside because they're afraid Jesus, you know. These, these are the men now who are going to counter that? And yes, they do, and yes, it does. And in fact, this, the gospel, spreads so fast, so far and wide, it's as if this didn't even exist. Why? Well, it's about how we overcome that doubt, and that's how the gospel ends. And it starts with the disciples finally moving out. Look at verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. All right, so I love that line because it opens a huge question mark. All right, after eight days, they finally get on their way. They go to the high place in the, in the Galilee, probably one of the hills around the Sea of Galilee, or maybe one of the, the mountain peaks that are up there, and they meet Jesus as designated, and they see him, and they worship him. And then there's that interesting little phrase at the end, but some doubted. What are they doubting? They're seeing him. He's right there. Well, that tells you something. They're not doubting his resurrection. That's not what Matthew's talking about. They see him. There's no doubt about that. What are they doubting? Matthew is referring to their doubts about what they're hearing Jesus tell them while they are there in the Galilee. What is he saying to them while they are there? Why did they even go up there in the first place? He's explaining to them how they're going to serve him now in the kingdom program, and as a result of what they've heard, some have doubts about their ability to fulfill that mission. Some are doubting their call in the kingdom work. Now, I want you to remember what these guys have gone through up to this point, but put yourself in their position for a second. And if you do, I think you can sympathize with their doubts. For three years, they followed a guy, a rabbi, who they knew to be the Messiah. They saw the miracles, they saw the crowds, they heard the teaching, and so on. They think that's going somewhere to a certain outcome, to the kingdom. And then, all of a sudden, the opposition rears its ugly head, and he's dead in almost a matter of days from when it started, and they think their whole thing is lost. They think their hopes and dreams are dashed. The whole plan is, is, is come to nothing. And then, almost just as quickly, He's back. He's alive again. Who does that? Right? I mean, at this point, everything must be thoroughly confusing and overwhelming to them. 
And now they've made it up to the Galilee, thankfully, at this point, and they're seeing him again, and they're just trying to fit it all together in their head, and here's what he says. Okay, guys, next step of the plan, you're gonna go out preaching this truth of me being resurrected to the whole world. I'm not gonna be with you, I'm gonna be in heaven, but don't worry, I'll be with you. You just go now and go tell everyone what you know. And they're sitting there thinking to themselves, we were with you for three years and we didn't even believe it. You know, we had multiple eyewitnesses and we wouldn't believe it. And you're telling us we're supposed to go out now and tell everyone else this is true? And yes, some were doubting. Who wouldn't doubt? I mean, have you ever not doubted this? Have you ever doubted whether you can convince someone of the gospel? Who has not felt that way? That's their experience right now. They're all wondering how they're gonna convince someone to believe something that they themselves struggle to believe, at least initially. All right, that doubt leads Jesus to reassure them that the kingdom program that they're now being assigned is a lot easier than they think. It's so easy. It's as simple as one, two, three. Three steps. Collectively, the church does these three, but individually, you may not do all three, not equally. Some of us may only do one or two. Some of us may be exclusive to just one. These are collectively the job of the church. And as we work together in the church, we accomplish the, the kingdom mission in these three steps. And remember, he introduces all of this in order to set aside our worry that it's hard or that it's difficult or we can't do it. It's exactly the opposite. This is low-hanging fruit. Everyone does this. And it's the part of the gospel of Matthew that we commonly call the great commission. You've all heard this, I know. I want you to look at it with me with maybe fresh eyes this morning. And it's how Matthew ends his gospel, verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them. Notice, this is right after it says, some were doubting. And, he, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Again, understanding these three really centers on your appreciation that this is meant to be reassuring. I've heard it said at times, and I think with, with great intent, well-meaning and all the rest, but I've heard it said sometimes that this is a bit of a, a challenge, you know, like we've put this goal in front of you that you have to aspire to. It's, it's a challenge. Let's all go after this, the Great Commission, which is exactly the opposite of why he gave it to them. He didn't say after all this trouble you've been through, okay, guys, I'm gonna lay a heavy one on you here. See if you can do this. The other way around, he's like, stop worrying, it's easy. It's just these three things. Go do these three things. Well, what are they? Well, it starts, he says, with knowing, and this is not one of the three, this is a preface, but he says it starts with knowing the Father has given me, Jesus, he says, all authority and power on earth. And now what he's saying is this, the power and the authority to accomplish the kingdom program is Christ's alone. So the outcome does not depend on us. Doesn't matter. We are not responsible for reaching the world for Christ. Jesus is. We are not responsible for convincing an individual that they should believe in the gospel. Jesus is. We don't need to find the perfect words. We don't have to have answers for all of their objections. We don't have to worry that we might mess it up and they go to hell. <laughs> Jesus has got this. It's all his power. It's all his authority. So when you go out and you face obstacles in whatever situation you're in trying to do kingdom work, it's going to be Jesus who finds a way around the governmental red tape. Or it's gonna be Jesus who finds the provision that you needed in order to get through the month of the year or do whatever the project was. He does not need anything that you bring to the table. 
He is fully capable of saving anyone at any time by himself with no help. He will grow his church, the Bible says. And he is doing a step beyond that. He is inviting us to join him in that work, and that means the pressure is off your shoulders. You can't mess it up. You can't get it wrong. Well, you could get it wrong, but you're not going to change the outcome, right? You can go confident in the, in the fact that your participation in the kingdom program and its outcomes do not turn on your ability. It's only about your availability. Are you going to be there when the work happens or not? Not one less soul will be present in heaven regardless of what you do, and I add, not one more. That is all in God's control. He has all authority and power. He didn't say, I'm going to share my authority and power with you. He says, I have it all, which is to say, stop worrying about it. Now, at this point, you might be tempted to ask, well, if that's true, why do I even get involved at all? Why do I even have a reason to do this then? He's going to do it all without me. Why bother participating? And the answer there, friends, is reward. The simplest answer I can give you. All our service to Christ brings opportunity for God to reward that service, to reward it both here and now in this life and in the eternal life. In the present time, if you work with Jesus, you will be rewarded with earthly outcomes like joy, like wonder at what God does, at at amazement, at contentment, at purpose, having purpose in life, reason to get up in the morning. You'll see the love of God in, in your life, manufacturing love in other people's lives. You'll see spiritual maturity growing in your own life. You'll find yourself looking and sounding more like Jesus. You'll walk away from sin. You'll, talk, you'll get rid of addiction. You'll stop dealing with you know, the consequences of your bad behavior. You'll start changing. <laughs> it's all good. It's all you getting rewarded for being part of something God was gonna do without you. It's so great. And as all of those things happen in your life, as the peace and the contentment and the purpose and the joy enter into your life, and as you grow through those things, you are also making it possible for God to reward you in eternal terms. Because ultimately, your service to Christ and the spiritual maturity that it develops in you leads to eternal rewards that Christ assigns to us based on how we please, and that's the Bible's testimony. And in the kingdom time, you will see the fruit of all of that labor as God dispenses it to you and I love this reward system because it's absolutely the best kind you can imagine. It's exactly what we do now with, with the, the little kids playing you know, soccer, baseball, or whatever, right? In those systems, right? Everyone gets a trophy just for participating. Right? That's how it works in the kingdom. <laughs> it's about participation. But here's the trick. You must be present to win. Present in the work and present in the kingdom by faith alone. So you know Jesus has all power and authority, which means you have nothing to lose by joining in that work and everything to gain. And here's the program, three simple steps. And it doesn't take long if you're watching the clock. It's in verse 19, there's two steps. Verse 20, there's the third step. They're summarized this way. Go, baptize, teach. Go, baptize, teach. And that group can be summarized, make disciples. Collectively, kingdom work is about making disciples of Jesus. And making disciples is a process of going, baptizing, and teaching. In the Greek of this phrase, the imperative is in the go and in the baptize and in the teach, not in the make. Make is not in the imperative in the Greek. So making disciples is the label for it all. The imperatives are go, baptize, and teach. 
Now, we do not all do all three things, as I said earlier, and we will not all do them equally or to equal degrees, but we all play a part. We don't all go in the same way or to the same degree, but we all go. We do not all get chances to baptize or teach or to the same degree as others, but collectively we make those things happen as a church. And let's look at them each briefly. First, go. We are all called to go. Go as ambassadors of Christ. Go, reach our world. Go with the gospel message. And everyone, I don't care who you are, you have an opportunity to do that in a simple way. You have a neighbor, you got a family member, you got a friend, a schoolmate, someone you bump into in the grocery store. Those are go moments if you choose to make them one. Right? So nobody can sit here and say, well, I'm not really into evangelism. Unless you live on a desert island by yourself, you have opportunity to go and you should be thinking like that. Now, having said that, some of us go further, like overseas. Some of us go deeper, if you will, like full-time ministry. Some of us go in traditional ways like door-to-door evangelism and some of us go in new and different ways like social media or Facebook or something or, or YouTube or whatever. Some of us even go vicariously We fund those who go. We pray for those who go. But our mindset and our heart is for the going. And so it's part of the mission. In all cases, though, the key is this. You're going to people who are not saved. And I say that because the Great Commission requires that we cultivate a concern for the unsaved, for those who do not have what we have in Christ. It means implicitly evangelism. Now, there's a part of our call in Christ to serve one another in the church, yes. But that is not a substitute for serving the commission's need to go. It's a means to that, perhaps, in some cases, but it can't be a substitute. Don't ever think that because you, you know, I sweep the the floors of the church, which is good, we need that. But that doesn't substitute for your role to go. Follow me? So kingdom work, fundamentally, is being an ambassador. Step two, baptize. In water, the way we're going to do it here on the 17th, as I said earlier. Fundamental step. But look, water baptism is about introducing the believer into the body. That is, there's a reason why you cannot baptize yourself. The whole point of it is to unite people through a common confession, to bring two people together or a group together. When someone believes in the gospel, they are to show it by receiving water baptism. And that act takes them from being a solitary believer to being a part of a community of believers because that's how the practice is done. That is why it requires two people. Now, in the modern church, we've adopted a, you've seen some churches adopt this this method called an altar call, which is intended to kind of do the same thing in a different way. Give the believer a chance to make themselves known and give the church a chance to receive that new believer. Here's the problem. That's not what the Bible says to do. Bible never says do an altar call. Bible says that's your altar call. Baptism is the altar call. It is the moment of testimony that moves a person into a public profession and from there into an incorporation into the body. You're, not, you're still saved even if you never get baptized. I think we all should know that. But you are not yet identified in the community of, of the saved to each other because you haven't taken the step of professing. God knows you're part of his family. You're still going to heaven, but you have not done what's needed to incorporate yourself into the life of the body. That's what baptism is about. That's why it's in this list. Because you want that new believer who's been reached by the going to come into the fellowship of the saints through baptism. So baptism is our moment of incorporation. And we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when we perform the baptism because all three were involved in bringing you to that moment. The Father foreknew you 
and elected you from the foundations of the earth. The Son died on your behalf to reconcile you to God and give you eternal life. And the Spirit is the one who brings saving faith and creates the born-again spiritual nature in you and brings you to the point of confession. So when you get baptized, we, we credit all three because all three were involved in getting you into the water. All right? Finally, teaching. This is the one you already know well. We do it here all the time. But here's its importance. Here's why teaching is a part of the Great Commission. Because it's the hardest step, the one that never ends, the one that's over often looked, but it's the one on which the first two depend. It's a cycle, right? We're supposed to create, through teaching, a new generation of disciple makers. As you hear the word of God, your heart should be stirred. And some of that stirring might be, you know, I need to do more to serve Christ. I need to go out more. And as you're stirred, you go. And as you go, prepared with what you've learned, you preach and teach and talk. And as you do that, someone comes to faith. And as they come to faith, they get baptized, they join the church, and then they're in the room to hear teaching, and here we go again. It is wash, rinse, repeat. And that cycle never ends. But if you don't do that teaching step, it eventually dies out. We don't know why we go. We don't know what to say if we go. We don't care if we go or not. We don't know what the consequences of going or not going are. We don't even know what baptism means anymore. You take teaching out, the rest of it falls apart. That's why we do this here. So weekly, you're going to see all three steps in a healthy church. When you come into this church every week, you're seeing step three. What I do when I stand up here is part of the Great Commission. Did you know that? I am attempting... To be faithful to this job, in this role, standing up here, Mike does the same, Wesley does the same. Why? Because we believe it's a call of Christ on the heart of every believer to teach that those who are in his body would obey what he commanded. All right. When you come here on some weeks, you'll occasionally see step two. We'll be baptizing like we will on the 17th. And every day of your life, you should be doing step one, going being an ambassador for Christ. Look at how they work together. Step one brings a person into the faith, into being a believer. Step two brings the believer into being part of the church. Step three brings the church into God's word. And then we start again. It's such a simple formula, right? That is why you don't need to invent new ways of doing church. I don't understand why we have that interest in the body anyway. What are we trying to improve on? We don't do a lot of innovative programs here. It's not gonna be the style of church we are. We're gonna do some things, yeah, but we're gonna pretty much stick to the three steps that work because that's the whole point. That is the kingdom work. Jesus is giving these guys this, this simple process because he wanted them not to have any reason not to go do it. No fear that it's too hard, too complicated, too difficult. He just wanted them to say, guys, if you can't do this, what, I mean, what is there to do then? Just go, just talk, just preach. So let's set our mind in 2021 on this. Wouldn't that be a great goal for the church? To not do something new or different, just to do the good things we're supposed to do better. And by that I mean, let's go into the world with an attitude of of being an ambassador, let's welcome new believers that come in into the body in the right way through baptism, and then let's just keep teaching. We finished this book, hallelujah. We've got more to do. Let's come back, yes, praise the Lord. We got an exciting year ahead, better things we know, better things we hope. One of them is to keep going with everything we've already been doing and just keep doing it better for more people. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the patience this morning as we listen to a long lesson, but we thank you, Father, most of all for the patience and opportunity to study through a long book. We thank you for what we've learned throughout, and today, Father, we thank you for the reminder to go out. I do pray, Father, that we would be a church that has a heart that wants to reach the world 
and it is obedient to that call, I pray that we would be an example of what you intended when you told your disciples to go. And Father, as we bring more in, help us to be good disciple makers, to baptize and to teach according to your word and to live it out. Thank you for this body and all that they mean to me personally and to each other individually. And I pray, Father, you'll grow us in 2021. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.